I'm still deciding how to start this talk tonight. It's one of those things that it comes or it doesn't. It reminds us of the unbidden nature of reality. Don't know what will come, what won't come. I had a few ideas about how I might begin tonight. Uh, the first one was to just connect a little bit with the uh, talk uh, a couple evenings ago and then again the talk last night. What I spoke about was the evolution of the, the Buddha's understanding of happiness uh, as, it, um, as it was um, discovered in his life through the experiences that he had beginning with the uh, complete immersion in the world of sense pleasures, moving on to the uh, deep uh, experience of the happiness and joy of concentration, but seeing that uh, all of these, both the world of, of sukha, these kinds of sukha, which is the word for happiness or comfort, joy, uh, the word, the um, these kinds of sukha ultimately proceeded along. The first two, though, the the, the sukha of pleasures, of sense pleasures, and the sukha of concentration, revealed itself to be ultimately what the Buddha later described as dukkha. That. Both of these kinds of experiences are subsumed under the umbrella of what he called dukkha. What does dukkha mean? Dukkha means uh, unsatisfactory, unreliable. It has many meanings. It's often loosely translated as suffering. So this kind of sukkha that we mostly devote ourselves to could actually be called dukkha, thinking that it's sukkha. But that's why we sometimes call it sukaduka. <laughs> so, yes. so this is the background of tonight's talk. Because the Buddha was actually having relinquished this uh, devotion to these unreliable kinds of pleasure, discovered a sense of well-being that was free liberated, not dependent on circumstances, able to sit in the middle of the joys and the sorrows with a heart that was, was unbound, un, uh, unaf- not, I wouldn't say unaffected, but able to remain mountain, in a kind of mountain-like balance. That, the, that within each of us is this capacity to, uh, to connect with that in us which is unmoved by anything that follows us, as one, one uh, teaching puts it, that follows us nearer than our breath. This, this knowing quality that goes through our ups, goes through our downs, goes through our highs, our lows. And in fact, it's not improved by the good experiences, nor is it diminished in any way by the difficult ones. It is so essential to our nature, but so easily overlooked. And it is the fact of overlooking this that is the... It is the fact that we overlook this that really moved uh, the Buddha out of compassion to then take those or point those with a little dust on their eyes right back into your own nature to stop looking elsewhere. After his awakening, resolved his uh, confusion, his ignorance, he was sometimes called uh, Sukhiya, or the happy one. You may think, having heard his teachings, that he might be called the great sufferer or something, <laughs> because there is such an emphasis on, uh, on coming to terms with, uh, as he described it, suffering and the end of suffering. That's all he was interested in. Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. That's all that this is about. He wasn't interested in metaphysics, wasn't interested in the meaning of life so much. He was interested in the fact of people's experience, what made them get bound up, caught on a wheel, a gerbil wheel of of endless waiting, hoping, expecting, and how to 
bind, unwind, uh, relinquish that tight holding to uh, the things that actually keep us from suffering. That if we, if we, or that keep us suffering. That if we, if we begin to see for ourselves, this causes suffering. The, what we must do is begin to remove the cause. If you remove the cause, it's obvious we stop suffering as much. So even though the Buddha was called Sukhiya, he was also called uh, by some the great physician. Because of his eye of wisdom, because he'd, what he had recognized, he saw that he kind of saw the essential ingredients of what make us uh, get all bound up and what can actually help unravel our, our confusion. And he had a basically a 12-point plan. He had a diagnosis. <laughs> he had a prescription and then an expected result. So, and so these three parts, a diagnosis, a prescription, and then an expected result, he applied to four different quadrants, you could say. So amazing treatment plan. So I might, I thought about whether we would look through the Buddha's teachings tonight through this lens of our medical model. And I suppose it's a useful template since it reminds us that the, the model of the Buddha Dharma is not a model, even though there is this emphasis, this attention given to uh, that which really makes us crazy. It's not about that. It is about a model of health. It's about a model of healing. It's about a model of a capacity to live in a, as a human being in a, um, in a state of well-being that is often just not part of our models for health in our life. Usually, in fact, I was doing a little research on some of the old of course, this is changing even in psychology today, but most of the psychology that has grown over the, especially in the last century, was all about basically just accommodating our discomfort a little bit better. And unfortunately, not much about any kinds of models of happiness or well-being. So 3,000 years ago, 2,600 years ago, there was this extraordinary model that was not... Uh, that we're not encouraged to adopt as a set of beliefs. I'm going to point, give you this 12-point plan tonight. And some have treated it as, a, as the philosophical overview of the Dharma. It's the teaching called the Four Noble Truths. And many treat this as just philosophical, but in fact, it is a living inquiry. It's a living practice. It's a living... Uh, it's a living question about whether or not the diagnosis is correct, whether or not we actually take the prescription and, and go home and really do it, or be here and really do it, and what kind of result that we get. And it's not something that, uh, that you have to believe. In fact, the central ingredient of the, the Buddha's example was that he basically rejected everything that he'd learned. Everything that was, was taught, culminating with that last teacher that he went, the highest of the high, he said not. And he looked for himself to see what is it that actually makes us tick. And over and over, there's a, a chant that's done in monasteries where the teachings are offered, especially the Theravada monasteries where Pali is chanted this one little line that says, Ehi paseko opanayeko pachatan veditapu winyuhiti. Maybe we'll even chant it tonight. It says, essentially, for all those, there's a little subtext, who can be taught, who are interested, for all of those to come and see for themselves what's true. And this is just the reminder, you don't have to believe anything. So as you listen to this tonight, as you take it with you in your life, this is meant to be a living question. In fact, one teacher, Stephen Batchelor, great Buddhist scholar, 
started one of his books called, the, the title of the book was called, a, um, called Faith, A Faith to Doubt, talking about the encouragement to keep this great question open, this, op- this, this very open doubt, not skeptical doubt that's very shut down and made very tight conclusions, the kind that we experience a lot on retreat. <laughs> but, <laughs> but more the great doubt that says, I don't know but I really want to discover. This is, in fact, the mind to which discovery happens, this mind of great doubt. So the the book begins, Buddhism is a living response to a living question. So I hope you hear these teachings with that spirit of, this is an open question. But essentially, this teaching says, to be in harmony with truth brings happiness. That's basically what we've been talking about. The opposite of that, to be in contention, to be reactive to, to resist what's actually true, keeps us bound, keeps us suffering. Does this seem true? This kind of resonates with our intuition. We can see that over and over in almost any moment. If you're suffering, and I'm not talking about just having physical pain, but if you're suffering, it's likely that there is something either in your reactivity or in, in, in your attitude that is resistant, contentious, not really accepting or allowing reality as it is. We can just ask ourselves that question anytime we're suffering. See whether it's true, not to just adopt it as a belief. It's understood in the teachings that, and hopefully you realize this in the practice, that Mindfulness has the, the function of purifying the, our reactivity. And you'll find that you cannot be reactive and be mindful in the same moment. And in some way, and this is a challenge, don't believe me, you can't suffer and be mindful in the same moment. Once there is that quality of knowing, even if the previous moment was total reactivity and you're feeling the full residue of it, in that moment of knowing, oh, this is reactivity, this is aversion, this is ill will, whatever it is, in that very instant, that very instant of mindfulness, because mindfulness is open, it's just acknowledging, there's nothing in mindfulness that says, I don't like it, I don't want it, get away, I want more of it. It just says, oh, this is what's happening. So that very little instant is an open-handed acknowledgement. And you could say it's a moment of, of non-contentiousness or non-suffering. Something to check out what happens in a moment of mindfulness. So after the Buddha's awakening, his recognition uh, of what he had been missing that was so close, the Tibetans say it's, it's too close, it's too wonderful, it's too easy, it's too vast. We can't believe that our own mind is, the, is, the, is what we're looking for. Cannot believe it. Because everything in our conditioning has told us to uh, go out of ourselves in search. This is from Rumi, who expresses this deeply conditioned human habit in his poem called Inside This New Love. Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with a thick cloud. Slide out the side, die, and be quiet. Quietness is the sure sign that you have died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. Appropriate for this evening.
Your old life was a frantic running from silence. So this is a little bit of a window into part of the the Buddha's uh, diagnosis. But he didn't start with the fact that we have that we constantly run from silence, that our mind has been in a constant state of resistance to reality, to truth. He started by saying, it's really important, as he turned the wheel of the Dharma, his first talk called the turning of the the Dhammachaka Sutta, he said, it's really important that you recognize, that you acknowledge that life is full of stress if you're born. This is not an aberration. It's not just you. It's everybody. Every single being who is born has stress. There is, as I mentioned briefly the other night, there's an enormous stress in being born. Squeezing through that little canal, intense stress to the mother who's giving birth. There is stress in the enormous vulnerability that we experience as human beings, subject to sickness, subject to aging, subject to old age, subject to dying. There are countless beings in this world that are completely at the mercy of uh, violent, oppressive forces. We have an enormous suffering in our minds. We don't. Uh, we are constantly being driven by a feeling of um, wanting what we don't have. Any of you recognize that? not wanting what you do have. Did you notice that a little bit today? So you may not have noticed it or known it, but you were actually having insight, direct insight into the first noble truth. Might as well see it in much more glorious terms (laughs) than another knee pain or another breath. So many ways that life presents that are difficult to bear. The Buddha said, this is just a fact of existence. It's not just some. The high and the mighty are also subject to the same laws. There's amazing... I always think of these days when I think of dukkha, when I think of the fact of stress and suffering, there's such amazing uh, medicine that is um, available to heal our wounds, but it seems like only the wealthy, especially in this culture, only the wealthy have access to it. And people with less privilege have to fight for it. This is dukkha. This is not, um, and we could say this is wrong, but this is how it is. And there's just endless stories of one thing or another about a disproportionate distribution of resources, an inverse relationship between what people offer in their lives and what kinds of rewards they receive. Often people who offer the least get the most. This is how it is, whether we like it or not. Life has within it dukkha. It has things that are hard to bear. So the main ones that the Buddha talked about were the... the, um, was the ba- were basically birth, sickness, old age, and death, uh, lamentation, grief, being separated from those things that you love, not getting what you want and not wanting what you get. But he also divided it into three different main categories that I think are, are useful to reflect on, not to keep wallowing in the, in the news of it all. It's not really bad news. It's not pessimistic. It's realistic. It's just how it is. There is that garden variety suffering that he called, this one's not the sukha dukkha, this is dukkha dukkha. <laughs> dukkha dukkha is just that difficulty at, feel, at being in a body. It's painful. Even the best experience is usually followed by one that's n- not so pleasant. And it's 
it's difficult. It's difficult to sometimes wake up in the morning and and it's kind of sweet that moment bef- before we take on our identity. We're just open, but very quickly there's the the mind comes in and says, I'm so-and-so, and then the future, and then the past, and the whole drama of me presents itself. That's dukkha. Not so easy to bear. So there's dukkha, dukkha. There's a sense of loss. There's a sense of grief. There's a sense of, uh, of very difficult to, to handle all this. And no one is immune. If I, if I did a survey... Every single person here would have their story, would have their traumas, would have their unpleasant memories and associations, would have their, that measure of, of pain that's difficult to bear. It's how it is. That's the diagnosis. Fortunately, there was a prescription. The prescription, as I mentioned briefly, was... We need to understand this deeply. We need to open to it. We need to welcome it. Because that's how it is. We don't really welcome it. Evidenced by this story. This is fictitious, but I think it's an example of what our habitual way of thinking is. This is a story called The 84th Problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work very difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children. Yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, Sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems go away now and then, but soon enough, others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly, then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. (laughs) What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. (laughs) So tonight, as you hear this, you say, yeah, I can accept it. I can welcome it. But everything in our consciousness has the habit. Not everything, but much of our consciousness has the habit of resisting. However, you wouldn't be here if there wasn't some interest in beginning to work with or open to the things that in our life, in our bodies, in our minds that are difficult to bear. And as we do this, we do it in a very gentle way. We don't just, uh, we don't just bring it on. We, we titrate. We touch it a little bit. We move away. We find, I think some of you are, I think we offered in the instructions, when something feels too much to handle, we shift our attention consciously to something more easy to bear, something neutral or slightly pleasant. And then we touch a little, we come back and touch it a little bit. Often when we, we have a thought because the instructions say, stay with this, sustain awareness, see how it behaves. Now it's great if our mind is strong enough to do that and we're, and we're at a particular time. Sometimes during the day our minds are strong, sometimes they're not. Some things are harder to bear than others. So we have to sometimes play a little bit, a little bit of this, move away, but all in the direction of learning to accommodate things that are the inevitable things that present themselves that are difficult to bear. Getting back to, so there was this garden variety dukkha called dukkha dukkha, which everybody has. And that second kind that also everyone has 
the Buddha called anicca dukkha. Anicca means the impermanence, the, the fact of change and just dealing with change, dealing with the change of, of circumstances, how unreliable, how vulnerable our circumstances are, how in any moment it, our situation can change, a natural disaster, or a change in our resources, a, uh, an illness arises, things are in a state of flux and that's very difficult to, to, to bear. The uncertainty born of ever-changing uh, conditions of our mind and our body. We need to see this the way it is. We need to learn to be in harmony with this fact, with this sense that we really don't know how things will unfold. This can be, a, uh, this is, can be something we actually grow in strength and grow in confidence that we can, once we make that shift to trust, putting our trust more in that ever available quality of knowing and attention, even things that are uncertain become workable, become something that we can, uh, we can bear. But as long as our sense of well-being is dependent on things staying a particular way, as they change, we feel what's uh, sometimes described as the similar to rope burn. We, we feel that sense of, of suffering. And as delicious experiences pass away, uh, there's often a little bit of, ah, a little bit of sorrow as things change. So there's dukkha dukkha, anicca dukkha, and the third kind of dukkha. It's a little bit more subtle. It's both obvious on a worldly, in a worldly way, but also more subtle. But it's called sankara dukkha or sankara dukkha. Sankara means conditions. It's the dukkha of, the, of conditions, of the relentlessness of conditions. Everything we experience is the fruit of conditioning, of adaptations and, and influences that are that are conspire, have conspired from beginningless time to come together as the enormous uh, ongoing flow of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and just continual sense experience, barrage, uh, this barrage of experience, that if we're really sensitive and we begin to feel that way on retreat, it sometimes feels absolutely impinging as though we have, don't have much skin and everything hits up against us. This is something that's not, that when we're sensitive, we feel this. Life is tough in this way. It's relentless. And there, it's actually a deep kind of insight when you begin to appreciate this, that it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's not all pleasant, nor is it supposed to be. Again, the trick of our mind to think if we're experiencing that sense of impingement, that something's wrong. This is just dukkha. I went to a teacher who I, I had a Burmese teacher for many years that Anna mentioned last night, Upandita Sayada. And I have many stories about him because he, partly because he was a great teacher, but he, partly because he was hugely challenging for me. Uh, really showed me my, my own versions and the cause of my own suffering a lot. But I went to him a little bit full of myself, thinking that I was having deep insight into dukkha. Because I was doing this uh, long practice period. It was a six-week practice period up in the mountains of, of Arizona, and it was at this Girl Scout camp. And I did all my walking on this tennis court at the camp. So all day long between my sittings, I was doing walking practice. And I was starting to feel that sense of, this is really painful. Everything started to bug me. Everything started to hurt. And just the slightest sound began to really impinge on my consciousness. The, the movement of the trees that would normally be this very beautiful sound to me, the sound of the wind blowing through the trees, became deafeningly loud, became and it felt as though I was just dragging this, this living corpse around with me, just so uncomfortable. And so I'm starting to adopt a little view. Hmm, I'm seeing dukkha. And, it, you know, there was some truth in it. But I didn't stop there. 
I've started to embellish it with, a, with great meaning and significance. So I went to report to the, um, the teacher all about my great insight into, into things that are hard to bear. And he, his parting words to me, as he basically dismissed me, as, you know, he dismissed, he didn't just dismiss me like he dismissed Sharon, who Anna was speaking about last night. For me, sometimes, when I'd walk in, he'd look at me, then he would pick up a book and start reading. <laughs> or every word out of my mouth, he would, go, <laughs> he would cringe as though I said the most stupid thing in the world. I'll tell you more stories about that as we go along. But this time, he, after I went through my, what I thought was a marvelous description of Dukkha, he looked at me and said, just see Dukkha as Dukkha. Just see pain as pain, suffering as suffering. And it told me how much, uh, how much I was embellishing it with a whole extra uh, narrative and meaning. The way it shows more, in a more obvious way in our life is just the relentlessness of all the things that we have to do to keep our life going. The way we get up, the, the Jackson Brown uh, form, the Jackson or the Groundhog Day version of life, get up and do it again. We get up, we have to cook, we have to clean, we have to shop, we have to wash, we have to clean some more, wash, eat, work, <laughs> and it goes around and around, and it's relentless, it doesn't stop. You don't always feel like dealing with it. That's dukkha. That's not an aberration. It's not just with some, it's with everyone. If they really open to it, it's not all it's cracked up to be. And this is not ultimately a problem, it's just how it is. If we are in harmony with this, if we open to it, if we welcome it, oh, this is how it is, this is dukkha, without embellishing it with huge reactivity, we find our composure in it. We find our composure with change, we find our composure with things that are difficult to bear. Slowly, slowly, we just take that seat in the middle of it all and meet it. So dukkha dukkha, anicca dukkha, sankara dukkha. Fortunately, the Buddha didn't stop with the, uh, with the news about our, our condition. Oh, he... the. Um, the third piece, the expected result, the third part, uh, he encouraged or wanted us to, um, to be able to have a feeling, yes, this has been understood. This has been known. This has been welcomed. So at any point on this retreat, when you experience something that's really hard to bear, you take it in a little bit to be able to say, even for just a small measure of opening to it. Yes, this is dukkha. Welcomed. This has been welcomed. To know that. This is what builds a certain kind of confidence. Faith that you can sit in the middle of things. So the Buddha didn't stop there, obviously. In the second part of the, uh, the diagnosis, prescription, and expected result called the second noble truth. He said the cause of our continued bondage, the cause of our continued sense of distress, not just the inevitable pain of life, but the suffering about it. So you could... This mostly focuses on our mental suffering. But the cause of suffering, what keeps that wheel of endlessly waiting for that future that never arrives, is this deeply conditioned habit that innocently born of of confusion and modeling this deeply conditioned habit to constantly want things to be different than the way they are. Any of you notice that during this retreat? 
the reason I keep asking you this question is because there is a, a line that you read in the suttas where it is said that the Buddha said, to be discovered here and now by the wise. Doesn't say there and then, doesn't say after 50 lifetimes, but to be seen here and now, to begin to notice the, for ourselves what is in this moment the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering. So in general, it is this deep conditioned pattern of wanting things to be uh, different than the way they are. But it expresses itself as what he called the, the mental state or the quality in the mind that he called tanha or craving or thirst or hunger. And, it, and this thirst or hunger, this craving, expresses itself as the craving most often three basic kinds of craving. Craving for sense experience, for sense pleasures. Having, this is what we, I spoke about a little bit the other night, having our sense of well-being dependent on satisfying the hunger for sense experience. That view, when we're in that state of desire for sense pleasure, craving for sense pleasure, that I cannot be happy until I... Uh, experience that pleasure. And it's often the most obvious example on a retreat is the desire for the bell to ring. Often, especially if there's, it starts with a little discomfort. So that desire for the bell to ring arises in the mind and then the bell becomes, as, and you can interchange the objects, it doesn't matter. The bell becomes the secret to happiness. And we've had the past experience that when the bell rings, there is this feeling of, ah, relief. And this has happened before because we've had many pleasurable experiences and there's been this feeling of, at least momentarily, a feeling of relief after we've gotten whatever we've gotten. Often we don't pay too close attention to the the next moments or to how that actually happened. But in meditative practice, the reason why we invite you to pay attention to what are called those hindrances, those mental states that when we don't notice them, torment us and keep us on that gerbil wheel, when we notice them, we start to develop some wisdom. We start to see that what really brings the the relief is not so much the bell, it's connected to it, but what really brings relief is the falling away or the cessation of wanting, cessation of desire. When we're in a state of desire, in a state of craving, how does the present moment look? It looks like it's just not okay. It looks like it's, the, it's a way that, a place that we're just passing through on our way to somewhere else. It looks like, as, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, it looks like an obstacle. Or it looks like the enemy, the present moment. And this is sad because this is all we have. This is all we have, this present moment. There is no such thing as future. It's future just an idea in the present. It's unborn. And yet, that when we're in that state of craving, wanting things that we don't have, wanting some experience or wanting some experience to go away. The reverse side is, is, um, is the aversive mind. It's just another, it's the reverse side of craving. Craving to get rid of, craving to have. And it's hypnotic because in all cases, the desire to either get rid of or to have makes whatever is go- you're going to get seem that much better. It makes it seem a lot better than it actually is. Have you noticed when you... When you Satisfy the desire. Well, it always brings to mind for me a very hard lesson I learned on a retreat. It was actually not such a hard lesson. It's kind of a bourgeois lesson. <laughs> I told one of the small groups that I might tell this story. I was in the middle of a three-month practice period. 
two months into the three-month practice period. And that two months arrives right about the time of Thanksgiving. And it turns out that Thanksgiving, so you can tell how innocently we develop this, um, this habit of craving and clinging, and then its hardened version in the form of attachment. But at Thanksgiving time, what often arises due to conditioning is the... Uh, it doesn't arise so much now, but it did at that time. This was vintage 1984 three-month retreat. Two months into it, November, it's the time of the year where the great rivalry football game that I grew up with. I grew up in the state of Nebraska. The football team is more important than religion. It is the gathering. There's some very wholesome qualities associated with it, but it gets embedded in the psyche as a very uh, important uh, Event. Now, some of you may not be able to relate to this at all, <laughs> but you might be able to relate to the state of mind. So quite naturally, at this time of year, a desire arose in the mind because that pleasant associations. And this tells us how moment to moment we start from feeling completely at home right here and now, completely at ease, and a pleasant thought arises, a pleasant sound arises, a pleasant taste, smell, whatever it is. In this case, it was a thought, a memory. And it had a pleasant association. And when Anna spoke about these three, these, uh, the feeling tones this morning, when a pleasant feeling tone arises, conditioned, arises in your experience, it's immediately followed by liking. Unpleasant, followed by not liking. Neither pleasant or unpleasant is usually followed by either ignoring, not seeing, going to checking out. So you may notice the times where, the, where you're experiencing neutral experiences. And one of those, for many people, is that space between the breaths. It's kind of neutral. It's neither pleasant or unpleasant. And that's often the time where we space out. So that's one of the ways that delusion takes place. But more often than not, in that in that neutral, we, we just don't notice. We just, we just don't notice. But this was a pleasant association, so it was quickly followed by liking. And that pleasant association had been followed by liking many, many times. And that fleeting reaction of liking hardened into, which all fleeting reactions do and they're practiced over and over, hardened into tanha, or craving. And that craving had hardened over the years into an attachment. And in this case, it was attachment and desire to watch this football game. And I started, my mind started strategizing. How was I going to watch this football game? It seemed got like a very daunting thing. And I, I, I was determined to, this is how delusion can take, delusion in this case, where you're not seeing clearly that, with those certain experiences, delusion manifests as ignorance or confusion. And the basic ignorance and confusion that we fall into, that's already operating the moment this first thought arose, was the three basic misperceptions or confusions that we have in our life. We take that which is impermanent and changing to be something that will give us permanent, lasting satisfaction, or that's lasting. We think it's permanent. Something that is unreliable and, and uh, won't give us eternal pleasure, we think will. And what, what, we, um, what we think is very, very personal is not really personal. It's just phenomena rolling on. But I, I won't get into that so much right now. So with this simple little thought, there was liking, there was wanting, there was then the strategizing. Pretty soon I was on that wheel of, um, of trying to watch the football game. And the strangest thing happened is I started presenting my desire to one of my interview teachers. And there was a guy on the retreat who was, uh, 
who was milling about the retreat because he had stopped sitting because his wife was on the retreat and she was pregnant and he was attending to some of her medical needs. He happened to drift by the interview room and he heard that, uh, that, um, that I wanted to go see this game and he wrote me a little note. <laughs> and he said, I will drive you <laughs> to the town of Amherst. This was 35 miles away. And so to make a long story short, I, got a, I, I agreed to go silently in this car for 35 miles to a motel room, <laughs> rent the motel room, turn on the TV, watch, the, watch the, the game, satisfy the desire, and I did it. And guess what happened? The team lost. <laughs> But the moment that there was the cessation of desire, the moment the desire fell away, it had been satisfied. There was that moment that when I sat down and there was the relief, but it was quickly followed by, as it is for most of us, a feeling of embarrassment, self-consciousness, a little bit of confusion. Now, what the heck happened? <laughs> this is a... a <laughs> And normally, what do we do at that moment? What do we normally do? We don't want to feel that, that groundlessness of that, of that, our whole structure falling apart. What our mind does is it generates another desire. In this case, I was present enough at this point, even though there was plenty of delusion along the line, I was present enough to, to really see the, the folly of my ways, and it became the cause because of a little bit more mindfulness, it became the cause of inspiration to practice and not to be so devoted to see the, those three things I talked about the other night, the pleasure, but the defect or the danger, and, to, and to be, not to be so dependent on this kind of pleasure for my sense of well-being. But that's a process, that's a practice. So it may not seem obvious when you are in a state of craving for sense pleasure, um, that it's painful because sometimes on the surface it's associated with so many pleasant images. But I'm sure, I don't know about whether it's happened already on the third day, and I share this because many of you are new to retreats, but there's a phenomenon on retreat called the VR, otherwise known as Vipassana romance, where someone triggers a, a feeling, a pleasant feeling, and then the liking, and then before you know it, within literally minutes, you have, uh, you have mated, you've dated, you've married, you've divorced, <laughs> you've, you've done, and, it's, and sometimes that force becomes so strong that it's actually quite painful. So often it's associated with a lot of pleasure uh, on the surface, but the underlying feeling when we're in that state of craving is, uh, craving, is often painful. And I've been actually tormented with VRs before. Either thinking that I, you know, my life depended on it, or, they, I was, or also worried about whether I was going to bother their practice because I was just so fixated. <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, whenever we're caught in that state of craving, caught in it, there is a view that this we can't find. It's just saying to ourselves, we cannot find happiness now. We, are, we put ourselves in a, in a state of, of suspended happiness. So we're hostage to what happens next. And each of us has our, our as I mentioned the other night, have our golden dreams. We have our... Are, we keep moving them. And each of us, you could think of as, we have that list of what has to happen before I can be happy, before I can truly be free. I have to either have, on retreat, it's my mind has to quiet down, my body has to quiet down, I have to be pain-free in daily life, it's, I have to be uh, in the right relationship, I have to have my wealth, I have to have my status, I have to have my needs met, I have to have, and it's... Uh, and it's, it's endless. It's endless. 
And what is the hope for result at the end of that rainbow? It's to be able to feel at home. And all the while, what we're missing is that home is a split second, a half breath away. It's right in the middle of whatever's happening. And how do we discover that when we're in a state of craving? We make that, that cause of suffering our object of attention. We feel it. Preferably, as Anna mentioned several times, we come out of the story of that desire. We feel that state of desire in our bodies, feel the turbulence of it. We move beyond the pleasant story connected to it. We feel that sense of suspended well-being. It not only then brings us much more at home into this present moment, but it also perhaps begins to open our, um, the door of, of mercy to see how much we're driven by this, this quality, how much from, be- from the beginning we've been taught to keep this feeling going, keep this obsession with what's next, to be able to feel that. And then in that process of being able to feel it, what was the Buddha's um, prescription for this cause of suffering? This must be relinquished, let it go. But our mindfulness doesn't necessarily let it go, it lets it be. It stops interfering with that state. It allows it to be there and reveal itself as a, as a, uh, a weather pattern that's changing. Use that metaphor again. It liberates itself. It lets itself go if we're not either lost in it or ignoring it, holding on to it. When we simply shift into that noticing, oh, this is desire. This is wanting. This is craving. Cravings like this. The reverse is also true. The same with aversion. The cause of suffering, the Buddha said, this must be abandoned. So we feel aversion. We feel all its... All its we feel the reverse of the VR, the VV. I know you've had those. The Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> where something or someone has triggered an unpleasant feeling. The unpleasant feeling was followed by disliking. The disliking was followed by, by, um, by craving to get rid of. Hardened in, into attachment to, to how things should be. You've all made your lists. We should have less talking, more talking. We should have uh, more yoga. We should have less walking. We should have whatever it is. We should have more beans, less beans. We have more (laughs) yogurt, more. (laughs) And what happens when we're caught in that that state? Uh, We're literally bound up. We're bound on that wheel, suspended waiting for things to turn out the way we want them to. And that's really painful. The Buddha said, notice this, notice this. And in the noticing, there is a cessation. Just before this retreat, I had the strange fortune. It was actually a a positive experience because it was a new experience. But it it triggered all kinds of um, thoughts and reflections. But I, I went to... The, essentially, I went to a Mormon wedding in Utah. Any Mormons in here? It's a very interesting uh, church. I went to the wedding, and a non-Mormon can't go into the church. They, you have to wait outside. Um, this <laughs> but the, all the wedding party, and many of them non-Mormons, wait outside this place called the East Gate, and the bride and the groom come out, and the friends build a canopy and they run through it and everybody cheers and everybody hugs and everybody's so happy. And then literally three or five minutes later, another couple comes out. The day that I went, there were 33 couples. <laughs> I, I'm hesitant to tell you. It, it, what went through my mind is, this is a breeding factory. <laughs> <laughs> That part was a little creepy in my own mind, but that was, that, that was just a view and opinion. You know, that was just, and I, I try not to be attached to that because these were really lovely people doing very lovely things with beautiful sentiment and all that. 
But nevertheless, I finished this uh, wedding, and my wife had had enough of the wedding parties and was kind of anxious to get to the airport. Little, <laughs> little did I know that she had, in her haste to want to get to the airport, she had, uh, she had changed in her mind the, the time of our flight, which turned out to be about an hour and a half after, later than, we, than, uh, than she thought. And so we were at the airport two and a half hours early. <laughs> and this may seem like a really mild thing, but it triggered this huge aversive reaction in me. <laughs> and, and I looked at her with such... Dis- you know, I was incredulous that she, that she could be so off on the time. But I had been, over the years, I'd, I, like, I, I like to go where the action is, where there's, where there's dukkha. It's just a part of the training. And so a few moments into that process, I noticed this is dukkha. There's the first noble truth. This must be uh, understood or welcomed. So I felt the pain of it, felt the pain of my attachment one of the four attachments, the attachment to sense pleasures, attachment to views and opinions, and rites and rituals, they're kind of closely related, how things are supposed to be. And the last one is attachment to self, and they're all bound up in self. So meanwhile, I'm feeling this attachment, this, the pain of this. And clearly, I could see that this is painful, this is dukkha, and I could see the cause, the cause of dukkha, was this attachment to the view. You're not supposed to get to the airport two and a half hours early. <laughs> I'm in the airports all the time. I don't, like, I don't like airports. So aversion, attachment to views and opinion. But the moment that was brought under, under the light of attention, there, there was the relinquishing. There was the letting go. And the letting go doesn't mean I got rid of it. It meant that I allowed it, by virtue of my attention, to let it take its natural course, to feel it, and then in, because I'm not interfering with it, it lets itself go. Things do in their own time. You don't, you don't have to, as we say, help the Dharma along. You can really just, you can work with things. Some things don't go away right away, but eventually, if there's not interference, you're not feeding the story, not holding on so tightly, and you can't hold on and be attentive at the same moment, it melted away. And so I could say the third part of that second noble truth, I could say what was expected, this must be abandoned, this has, be, this has been abandoned or let go. Ajahn Chah put it this way, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. So that spirit of relinquishing, letting be, letting go, as is, all different flavors. So that naturally points to the, um, the third truth. I could spend a, many nights talking about the second because it's, a, it's really central, so prevalent in our practice, but one that often doesn't get enough attention is what the Buddha called the third noble truth. There is a cessation of suffering. There is a cessation of dukkha. And the prescription for the cessation of dukkha, the falling away of suffering, to be seen here and now, the prescription is, this must be realized. And then one has to be able to say, this has been realized. And there may be a more ultimate uh, cessation of suffering, um, uh, some profound experience of nirvana. There, there are very deep meditative experiences where there is a, a profound shift in, in understanding and real relief. But... The, way that, the only way we can discover it here and now is in these little vignettes of our day-to-day experience here. It's one place that we can verify that whether or not this is true. So using that little story I told you, there was 
there was the experience of suffering. This was understood or welcomed. There was the cause of it, this attachment to how I thought things should be. And as there was a relinquishment of that attachment, there was the direct experience of the cessation of that attachment, that clinging that I had to how things should be. And there, and by virtue of there being mindfulness there and attention, there was the realization that this is past, this is over. This is, this is the end of suffering, at least for this moment. And so we can find it in these, we can begin to work with it. And, in, and when I say the end of suffering, there's, it's, it could be experienced as the passing away of, of some pain that you have, but that's not so much what we're talking about. We're talking about the passing away or the falling away of our reactivity to the pain. Because as we've spoken over and over, it's not so much what's presenting itself. It's that it, what determines our suffering or not is how it is I'm relating to this. Am I relating to it with resistance or contentiousness? Or am I receiving this openly? Am I allowing it to take its natural course? And with that, with that letting go, that abandoning of the, of the clinging, in, at least in this case, there was the end of clinging. I could feel that everything was passing. And, of course, the mood changed as well. But it doesn't always instantly change. Just last but not least, there the fourth truth, which uh, we're speaking about every day, which is the, really the practice of, of mindfulness. The fourth truth is there is a path. And that path, as I described the other night, has within it the purification of action, not living a non-harming life, purification of mind, cultivating the qualities that build strength of mind and concentration, and purity of view, developing wise understanding. The navigator in that path is the, is the cultivation of mindfulness. So the prescription or the diagnosis is uh, there's a path. The prescription, this must be cultivated, must be followed, must be developed. And one has to be able to say the last part, this has been cultivated. Done is what has needed to be done. So that's what we're doing here. And uh, I'll end with a short passage from the Buddha, from one of his famous suttas called A Handful of Leaves. The Blessed One was once living in Kasambi in a wood, in some wood, wooded area. He picked up a few leaves in his hand and he asked the bhikkhus, How do you conceive this, bhikkhus? Which is more, the few leaves that I have picked up in my hand or those in the trees of the forest? The leaves that the Blessed One has picked up in his hand are few, Lord. Those in the woods are far more. So too, bhikkhus, the things I have known by direct knowledge are more. The things that I have told you are only a few. Why have I not told them? Because they do not bring benefit, no advancement in the awakened life. And because they do not lead to dispassion, to fading, to the cessation of suffering, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to nibbana. That is why I have not told them. And what have I told you? This is dukkha, or suffering. This is the origin of suffering, or the cause. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is what I, what I have told you. Why have I told it? Because it brings benefit, the advancement in practice, and because it leads to dispassion, to fading, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to nibbana. So bhikkhus, let your task be this. This is dukkha. This is the cause of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. Let's just sit.
your old life was an endless running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. Thanks for your attention, your long enduring attention. I went a little long, but uh, there's still 25 minutes for walking practice. Just enjoying a mind of non-clinging, non-grasping. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.